There's a cliche in our world of buying businesses. You have to submit three LOIs before you close your deal. And another cliche, a deal dies three times before it closes. Now, these are obviously approximations. Every searcher's mileage will vary, but they point to a core unhappy truth about buying a business. Broken deals are part of the game. On your journey to buy a business, you are exceedingly likely to invest and lose time, money, and perhaps most costly of all, hope. Part of being successful at this game is managing all three so that you don't exhaust any of them before you get your deal over the finish line. But if you're a regular listener of Acquiring Minds, you probably already know all this. Countless guests have referred to their broken deals. Well, today, I wanted to have on a searcher who just went through this. I know Nick Wheeler personally and had been getting updates on his search, including his landscaping deal, which looked like a great business and a great business for him in particular. Well, I also got his update when that deal died. And I asked Nick, would you come on the pod to share what a broken deal looks and feels like as it's happening? He generously obliged. So today you get to see this infamous broken deal phenomenon up close. I think we all agree that showing the good and the bad in this messy, unpredictable world of buying small businesses is valuable. And the experience Nick shares here is definitely that. He does a great job calling out lessons and takeaways as he goes. My own takeaway from this conversation is the power of attitude. All of us, both in our searches and in our broader lives, can learn from Nick's perseverance and good humor in response to a maddening episode. Here he is, in the trenches searcher, Nick Wheeler. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader. Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. Nick Wheeler, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Well, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Nick, you recently suffered the frustration uh, and setback of a broken deal. You were, you thought, very close to acquiring a business, to finally crossing the finish line, but the seller had a change of heart late in the game. 
So we hear a lot about broken deals, uh, the disappointment they bring, the loss in time and treasure, but I haven't had someone on who's dealing with that particular pain in the moment. And you are essentially in it right now. This was just a few weeks ago. Closing week would have been this week, I think you said. Um, and you agreed to come on and share what it's like. So first things first, Nick, thank you for saying yes, because we are going to spend some time on something that maybe isn't the most pleasant uh, part of search. And you've agreed to do this so that other people on the path to buy a business can benefit. So appreciate well, it. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And I think uh, it's important to hear these types of stories. You know, I know you've had a few episodes recently with uh, people who have had challenges with search. And of course, everyone has challenges, but you don't hear those stories as often. Uh, and I think those are often the most impactful and, and where you can learn the most. So hopefully uh, folks listening can learn a few lessons from from my ordeal. Um, and when I think back about the, the cases in business school that we studied, the ones that I remember the most are the, uh, the challenged uh, cases. So um, you know, learning from other people's failures is, is definitely a valuable lesson. Exactly. And I, and I hear that from the audience a lot. They really seem to, um, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but get a lot of value from the stories that don't go perfect. Before we get into it, Nick, let's get um, some quick background on you, please. Sure. So uh, I grew up in the Philadelphia area and around small business owners. My dad had a small uh, printing business, really he was a print broker. Um, very, very small business, but always worked for himself. My grandfather had a, a horticulture distribution business. So it was always in the DNA, I suppose, though I never thought I would do it one day myself. Um, I went a very different path. Don't really come from a military family, but uh, I think 9-11 had a pretty big influence on my life when I was in high school. So ended up going to West Point for college, spent 10 years as an army officer, Ultimately, I always wanted to become a, a Green Beret, um, which you can't do in the Army until you're a captain, so about five years in. So I spent my first five years as an infantry officer. I got to lead an infantry platoon for a couple years. Then I went to the Ranger Regiment and led a Ranger platoon. And then eventually, when I was eligible, went through uh, the two years of Special Forces training and spent my last few years leading a uh, Green Beret team. Uh, so had a phenomenal time in the military, did it for nearly a decade. And, um, and when I was getting out, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Um, in fact, funny enough, I wrote in my business school application about taking over my dad's very small business and kind of scaling that. So I, I, I was an acquisition entrepreneur, I suppose, before I realized it. And uh, I later learned, you know, it probably wouldn't have been a good, uh, you know, search fund type of acquisition. But funny enough, I, <laughs> I, um, I was interviewing at HBS and part of that was talking about, you know, my plans after school. And then about an hour after the interview, my friend A.W. Simmons, uh, who, who I served with and was already a student there, told me about the whole search fund model, which... I frankly thought was uh, you, you had to have been a, a, a hoax or you couldn't too sounded too good to be true. So um, he told me to read this book, the HBR guide to buying a small business. And I quickly realized that that was the path that I wanted to pursue after business school. So mm -hmm. um, spent two years at HBS and learned about search and then uh, decided to do a self-funded search immediately following school. 
Um, I'm doing a search in the the greater DC area where my wife and I live. So, you know, I have a pretty tight geographic filter um, and decided to sell fun for, for a, a variety of reasons if we want to get into that. But, um, you know, I was fortunate. We have a fellowship through, through HBS that I won uh, to help kind of fund my self-funded search. It's just a grant that, that, I'm get, that I get for a, a two-year period. But really, uh, I'm a wife-funded searcher. So my wife has a job here at a, <laughs> at a uh, government technology company. So, uh, you know, that helps float us through the, the search period um, while I don't mm-hmm. have a real salary coming in. So, um, yeah, I'm about a year into my search. Not an anniversary I wanted to celebrate and uh, would have been closing this week on, on this deal, but uh, moving on to others. So such is, the, such is the life of a searcher sometimes. Well, you're saying all of this with a smile, so I think you're processing it well. Uh, and I have every confidence that you uh, will find a business and buy a business, Nick, So, uh, and we'll have you back on when that happens. So we'll get into maybe a little bit more of your decision to go self-funded and kind of search prep, search philosophy in that conversation. I really want to kind of fast forward to just... Um, you know, hearing about this particular deal, so people, because this episode is going to all be kind of all about the experience of of losing a deal and how what that what that's like. So, how long into you said you're a year into it now? How long into your search did you find the the business that's the subject of today's conversation, and um, and how did you find it? Sure, I was about. I think I first heard about it in January, so about six months into my search. And it was through Steve Ressler, who I'm sure you've probably had on the podcast, yeah. who is also here sure. in the D.C. area. Well, that's actually how we met. Um, right. And he mentioned it to me. It was a broker deal, which I typically don't really do too much uh, brokered outreach. Most of my search has been proprietary. Um, but... Uh, I had a couple others I was working on, so it was kind of, you know, maybe number four uh, target on, on my prospect list. But the other ones filtered out, and I said, "Steve, let me get that intro." So I think I met the owner for the first time in late February with the broker. Had a great initial conversation at a coffee shop in Arlington that I'm sure you know of, <laughs> and he um, certainly struck me as a real seller. They had been through a broken deal about a year prior with a with a private equity buyer, which which of course I kind of saw as a potential red flag, but sometimes broken deals can create fatigue and a really motivated seller. We talked about working capital on the first conversation and he was in his early 60s. It's a business that's been around for over 30 years and it seemed like the right type of search fund acquisition. Uh, you know, Frankly, I thought it was a little too small for a private equity buyer, a little bit too much key man risk. It probably needed a search fund type operator to come in and buy it. And, um, yeah, I was really excited after leaving that first, uh, meeting with them. You know, I thought this is a real seller and I think this is a good, um, search fund type, especially self-funded search acquisition. Um, you -hmm. know, in terms of size, it was around, um, you know, 1.3 million of adjusted EBITDA. You know, the last six or seven years, it was between a million and a million and a half. Um, You know, there was some, of course, seasonality, given that it was a commercial landscaping business. Mainly, the the snow was the the biggest fluctuation year to year. 
which caused a little bit of issues with this deal because we we had the first year without snow here in the dc area in the last 10 years so their, their trailing 12 months was a bit down but um i thought it was a down the fairway type of self-funded search deal so uh we went and so it was commercial it. commercial landscaping and so what kind of clients just kind of local office park sort of thing yeah so their biggest client was government which is one of the things ah. i really liked about this business so they have some very large government customers here in the DC area. Um, I would be giving away who the company is if I said specifically who they were serving. But the uh, the thing I really like about any government service business is you have long-term contracts with really predictable, s- sticky revenue. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they had a, a mix of government and commercial. They had about 200 commercial customers, everything from office parks to condominiums to HOAs. Um, but their their you know, majority of revenue came through these large government uh, contracts that they served. And it, and it was unlike a lot of landscaping companies, it had the right mix of maintenance to construction. So only about 15 to 20% of revenue per year was tied up in construction. Mm-hmm. So I really liked the recurring revenue nature of the maintenance work that they were doing. Yeah, sounds like a, I mean, it's it really is checking a lot of the boxes. Circling back to where you thought that the broken deal with a private equity outfit um, was a, could be interpreted both, you know, as good or bad, good in that maybe they have deal fatigue and they kind of are that much more motivated to sell. But why could that be a red flag? Why did you perceive that as a potential red flag? Just because they might be sellers who are not serious? Because they, they just didn't get across the finish line before, so maybe they won't get across the finish line again, sort of thing? Well, th- that's one red flag um, from a broken deal. The other is, why did why did the buyer walk away? And of course, you're only going to hear well, right. the this, this story of from the seller's perspective. What I was told, which is a common story, is the, the PE buyer came in um, and they cut cash at close well, in, well into diligence. You know, They had already drafted legal docs by this point. And the sellers walked away because of that. At least that's the story mm-hmm. I heard. I'm sure there was more to it than that. But, um, I, you know, that to me seems uh, like a logical explanation that sure. happens and and maybe they didn't feel right. There was also, uh, which is typical with private equity buyers, they wanted the seller to stay on for a couple years. And I'm assuming there was some rolled equity or earn out contingencies that they weren't comfortable with. So um, again, I felt, well, a search acquirer is a different approach. I'm probably not going to offer as much as the private equity buyer, but I have a succession plan where you're going to be out of the business within the next 12 months to the extent that's appealing, which it certainly sounded appealing at the time to the uh, husband seller. We haven't talked about, he had uh, a co-owner, his wife, who really wasn't involved in the business but owned 50% and, and had a, a very meaningful um, involvement in this whole process. You're smiling. Something tells me that the, the wife plays a big role here. So, so maybe now is the, is the time to introduce her. Sure. So, you know, when I met you know, who I refer to as the seller, cause he's really the CEO, uh, she was not there, you know, it was just him and, and the broker. Um, and so I put in an LOI and the LOI actually got rejected. The broker said, Hey, you know, they, they, um, you know, they didn't like the offer. And I was just curious. I said, Hey, t- uh, to the broker, I- I'll, I'll say John, uh, mm. it wasn't really his name, but 
John, why, why, um, I thought, I thought this was a real seller. And he said, you know, his wife is just not comfortable with it. And he thinks it's going to be like the private equity process again. I said, well, did you tell her about my approach? Why don't, let's just have dinner. My wife and I meet with the two of them. We're here. We live 20 minutes from the business. Let's grab dinner and, and maybe she'll be more comfortable when she realizes I'm not a private equity firm and I'm an entrepreneur in the area that, that wants to run their business. So he set that up. We had a, a fa fantastic dinner, uh, you know, rapport and trust seemed high coming out of it. We, we might as well have been high-fiving on the way out. She said, hey, I really <laughs> like you guys. You remind us uh, of, of ourselves from 30 years ago. So the next day, you know, the, the broker says, hey, they want to move forward. We went back and forth a little bit on some of the LOI specifically with regard to the, the seller note. But we got, you know, within the next week, I had a signed LOI and I thought, okay, I've got a, I've got a real deal. Let's, let's move forward with this. Pat, patting yourself on the back for a, a dinner well executed because you went into that dinner nervous and you came out seemingly victorious. By the way, what, what does a dinner like that feel like? Because I've, I've never asked this of, of, of any of my guests, but where you go essentially as strangers, you bring the partners and the four of you sit down to break bread, but not really knowing each other. Do you just kind of listen and kind of have them tell the story of the business sort of thing? And I'm sure they ask you for your story. I think the probably the only analogy that would uh, resonate with people is it's probably like going on a first date. You're a little nervous yeah. and yeah. maybe there's certain information you want to get, but you don't want to be too direct, direct and asking for yeah. it. Um, so... Sure. Um, it's a first date. For I, sure. I always That's do, exactly what it is. At that point, I'd already seen enough of from the sim and some of the financials that I knew it was a legitimate, um, you know, search fund acquisition from an investment perspective. So I just viewed that dinner as an opportunity to build rapport and trust. So I try not to go into those types of those dinners or lunches or whatever with too many probing direct questions. It's really about mm -hmm. building the relationship. Um, so, of course, we, we got to talking about the business, but I, I just tried to pull out the story from them and let them kind of really um, kind of uh, not gloat, but reflect on this thing that they've built over the last 30 years that yeah. they frankly should be proud of, proud of building. And I don't think many small business owners get the opportunity to do that. So uh, when you listen to them and, and compliment them, I think that does build a lot of goodwill and trust and um, you can get to the you know, the, the nitty gritty detail questions after. Um, but by that point, I'd already seen a lot of the financials. So that was just really an opportunity to build trust and hopefully walk out. The goal was to walk out of that with a deal. And, and I did. So I, I would say the dinner was a success, though. Looking back, it would have saved me a lot of time and grief had it just gone poorly. And uh, the LOI <laughs> not been accepted. That's right. Um, yeah, said said every divorcee. Man, I wish that first date had just gone badly. <laughs> save save me the whole marriage. <laughs> Thankfully, this was a lot less time and a lot less expensive than that. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers. More Staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months 
to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. But to give some, yeah. some timeline, like I said, first meet the seller, just the husband, into February. I don't have the dinner probably for another three weeks. So let's just say mm. third week of March. I had my, my signed LOI. We went back and forth on a little bit, but April 7th, just to give a timeline of events. So okay. April gotcha. 7th you know, is the first, uh, is when the LOI is signed. So five weeks after meeting the, the husband for the first time. And then we go to diligence from there. So into March, you have this successful dinner, early April um, signed LOI, then what? So, you know, I've already done a, quite a bit of my own diligence, but, um, you know, getting the data room together, getting access to QuickBooks, you know, that's one of the big lessons learned. The quicker you can do that, the better. Um, you know, we'd already discussed working capital, but it's difficult unless you have access to QuickBooks and you can really look at the last 12 months of the balance sheet to have that really critical conversation. Um, and getting data probably in a lot of small businesses is very difficult, especially this one. I mean, you know, these are sellers that don't have a website that don't understand how to drag and drop files into a data room. So I had to physically drive to the business and he knew how to use a thumb drive. Um, when I asked for tax returns, uh, I got, uh, in bank statements, I got a box of thousands of printed pieces of paper and I had to say, Hey, can you ask your banker for this thing called a PDF? So the data process took some time. So you know, the first three to four weeks was really just my own, um, my own diligence, my own mini quality of earnings and proof of cash to ensure that I felt comfortable moving forward. And, and that's another lesson, you know, looking back, I, I, I think as a searcher, you have to be very deliberate about staggering your diligence because once you start bringing in third-party providers, you know, quality of earnings and legal, that's when it becomes very expensive. Now, of course, that's with the trade-off of time kills all deals, but frankly, time would not have been what killed this deal. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I'm glad I did some of my own diligence before turning on quality of earnings. So um, I engaged with a well-known QOV provider. Uh, I'll, I'll give them a plug, Hood, Hood & Strong. Uh, you probably mm -hmm. advertise, they probably advertise on here. So worked with Jerry. We got through phase one of the quality of earnings and um, was beginning to do some insurance HR diligence, hadn't gotten to legal yet. Uh, we had done a, you know, I'd done a multiple site visits. I'd met his team under the guise of being a consultant, which I don't think they believed, but, um, you know, we did the, the, the ride around, uh, you know, toured all of his sites um, and even got to the point where he was saying, you know, when you're running the business, when you're doing this. So certainly felt like, this was going to move forward. Um, and then uh, at some point in that first month or so was the first blow up of the deal. Uh, and it was over working capital. So I'd finally gotten enough data from both their balance sheet and some of the construction work that they were doing to get to a, a working capital target. 
Uh, so another lesson here is, is, you know, the sooner you can, you can have the working capital conversation, have it. Um, and that became a, a huge sticking point, um, which surprised me because we talked about it in concept on our first conversation and what yeah. the target was with their private equity buyer. Um, but we were pretty significantly off. And <clears throat> what was surprising was the broker actually agreed with me and was on my side. So it was really the seller and his wife who weren't comfortable with, with what it should be. So usually you would think, you know, their, their advisor would be helpful if, if they're aligned with what you think that value should be for working capital. So that nearly blew up the deal. And I actually capitulated, you know, for what it amounted to maybe $150,000, $200,000 after back and forth negotiations. I capitulated to what, what, you know, they said was what they thought was fair. Uh, and that included me going to their house and sitting at their dining room table and kind of having a, uh, a come to Jesus moment, as I call it, to, uh, to convince them that, you know, this is a fair number and it shouldn't affect how much cash is coming off the balance sheet at close and so on. So, so that nearly killed the deal and we were on the rocks for, for a couple of days. And then the owner called me and said, Hey, you know what, we're, we, we can do this. Like this makes sense. Let's move forward. Not only that, like, you know, I am, I think you're going to do great running the business and, you know, I'd actually like to stay involved with, with you somehow, maybe help you sell and be a, 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 a BD guy for you. So I thought, okay, I saved this from the abyss again. Let's move forward uh, and, and continue Q of E and, and get closer to drafting the legal docs. Nick, did you tell us what you, what the LOI said, what the offer was? I don't think you did. Uh, no, we didn't. So, um, the offer was, you know, because it's seasonal, I really kind of looked at, you know, what did this look like over the last three years? So it was about a, a four times EBITDA multiple on a three-year average. Mm-hmm. Um, for 2022, it looked more like three point, um, 3.4 times. So, mm-hmm. um, and on TTM, it looked higher than that because we had no snow. So I think if you look at a three-year rolling average, it was about four times, which is, I think, pretty fair for a commercial landscaping company. And then a big part of that, we did have a seller note in place. Um, that was going to be about 25% of the deal was in the form of a seller note. And the, this working capital sticking point. So do you think that they understood your point? Like, I guess, did this just become kind of a tug of war is like, who wants more money? Or do you think that they fundamentally kind of like didn't understand your point as to why the business needed to have this gasoline within it when they turned over the keys. Like the argument for working capital is from, from we buyers is, is really kind of one of practicality more than just wanting cash, like wanting to line our pockets. Um, but from the seller's perspective, it probably isn't. It probably because for them, it just feels like, okay, well, I'm getting paid that much less for my business. If you're demanding another hundred thousand dollars be left in the business. Um, how, what is the, what is the nature of that disagreement look like? Well, I think most owners understand conceptually what working capital is, but just not in the, you know, fancy finance terms that, uh, private equity or MBA types might use. So I think that's the biggest challenge is to 
convey what working capital is in uh, uh, in layman's terms in a way that's you know very understandable. I think ultimately he 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 understood the cash flow in his business and what goes in and goes out. Um, but there's always that argument from sellers that well that those account the accounts receivable should be mine going forward and um and it, it it's complicated when there's not very good accounting mechanisms that aren't capturing a lot of what would be working capital so in this case their construction work uh although only 15 to 20 percent of the business or so uh, sucked up a lot of the working capital, which I think has been discussed on your podcast before and other episodes. And they were actually running that through a different accounting tool, uh, not through QuickBooks. So there was another few hundred thousand dollars of working capital that I would be responsible for on the construction side that wasn't well accounted for. And he wasn't really tracking well through through his QuickBooks. So, so that hmm. certainly complicated matters as well. Um, but I think just the general lesson in, with any business with regard to working capital is to be able to describe it and discuss it in a very um, straightforward and simple way and try to avoid the more, you know, financial jargony type terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's just uh, fundamentally more difficult in a seasonal business where working capital fluctuates. So uh, landscaping makes it even more difficult because depending on the time of year in the the time of year that you're buying the the working capital target will vary significantly. Okay. And so this discrepancy came down or this this uh distance between you and them came down to about 150 uh to $200,000 uh on a 5ish million dollar acquisition. It was um it was about a four, it was a 4 million dollar deal. So, um, you know, when I gave the EBITDA earlier, that was their 2022 EBITDA. So it was right. about, you know, on average, the last few years is like a $1 million EBITDA business. Gotcha. Um, so it seems fairly insignificant. And I, right. I don't think working capital is what killed the deal. It was really just the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Over time, I realized, one, the, the broker didn't really walk them through some of the finer points of my offer. Um, and... I don't think they really understood uh, the seller note until I sat down with them at that at their dining room table to discuss working capital to also discuss how the seller note was going to work. Um, and so, you know, I probably should have had that conversation more explicitly and not assume that the broker really walked them through the payout uh, earlier on. Um, but I think more importantly, she just was not, I don't think she ever will be ready to sell and go through that process. She really enjoyed the lifestyle of working what was about three hours a week in this business and making, you know, SDE of a million to a million five some years. <laughs> and, um, sounds nice. And I, 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 as I got to know them better and some of the, the, the personal lifestyle, I think they, it's probably spent much of the money that, they had been making over the years. So looking at a retirement where they were going to walk away with, it was about 2.8, 2.9 cash at close. And then let's just say they were going to take another million dollars off the balance sheet or so. So high three millions was not going to be enough for her at least to retire off of without a significant lifestyle adjustment. 
that didn't become evident to me until later on in the process. So I think working capital was just one of many reasons why yeah. they couldn't get comfortable with, with moving forward. Well, you, you explain working capital to them. You kind of get, you get them over the hump on that question, you think. Um, and so, so now you're, you're, so get us back to the plot. So now you're back to thinking the deal is going to happen. Uh, and then, and then what? Yeah. So this is, let's just say probably late May was when we had the second time where it nearly blew up and we hadn't quite finished at least phase one of the QOV. We still were working on a little bit of the data. So I let Jerry from Hood and Strong know, say, let's keep going with the QOV. I gave my lawyers a heads up. We're about two weeks out from drafting the purchase agreement. And um, I was feeling pretty confident that things were going to move forward. I thought we had gotten through, I think, a moment that a lot of search uh, acquirers go through, which is a deal nearly fell falling apart. Um, so um, it wasn't too much time between that second incident. Maybe another week or two transpires. You know, we finish we finish at least phase one and uh, a few other things, and and uh, and then it just you know I get a call out of the blue from the broker. Hey Nick, this uh, this isn't going to move forward. He, he's like, I'm so sorry. I, I actually had a very good relationship with the broker to the point where he told me if this doesn't work with you, I'm firing these clients. But um, uh, it, it just it kind of all came out that uh, that third you know third time um, where it was working capital. It was the seller note. It was concerns about what was going to be asked in reps and warranties. And I think that was a, a, a sticking point in their last um, broken deal with the private equity buyer. Um, so it kind of all just came out. It was a, emotional. And I could tell he, he was the one that I spoke with. He was defeated because I think he wanted to really move forward, but I just knew he wasn't able to, to get his wife on board with it. Um, and at that point I knew, you know, I'm, I'm a resilient guy and I, I'll, 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 uh, you know, run through a brick wall to, to make something happen. But this one, I, I knew that, uh, you know, that it was, it was dead at that point. So, um, so yeah, I had a, you know, very, uh, tough, tough conversation and was certainly disappointed, but thankfully I've talked to enough searchers and have studied this process enough to know that this happens more often than it doesn't, and hopefully it happens earlier rather than later. Um, but thankfully, I hadn't started the, the legal documents where I would have really had significant costs in terms of broken deal fees. And so at this point, Nick, how much had you come out of pocket in terms of like overall deal fees? So probably around 7K. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, which of course hurts more... more but more significantly would be the the time that I spent would would certainly be the, the yep. most expensive aspect of this broken deal. But I mean, legal fees can run certainly on a deal like this upwards of over fifty k. So you know, thankfully it didn't fall apart. You know, post purchase agreement and and further along. And you know, I I I also had learned from others that you need to keep your funnel open even when you have a deal in hand. So, sure. you know, I still had some opportunities 
even as this was falling apart. Admittedly, I was certainly doing much less outreach and I was almost to the point where I was just going to stop. But if nothing else, it keeps you sane when you know you have other opportunities as you, as you pursue one acquisition. And then of course, if it falls apart, you have others you can, you can move to. So certainly glad that I, um, that I kept my deal funnel open and had other opportunities when this one fell through. Yeah. And just to close the loop on, on the psychology of the sellers itself. So a lot came out, the sell, the seller actually spoke with you, this phone conversation, and a lot came out through that conversation. Um, but it, he, he was never explicit about it kind of being his wife being the stopper. That's kind of Nick's interpretation with all of the, the, the whole picture that you eventually got that it was the sale price wouldn't have supported the lifestyle that they'd come to enjoy and mostly with the wife. Yes. I mean, and he mentioned, you know, her, she's just not going to get comfortable with this. And, you know, there was some personal things going on with them with, you know, a death in the family and moving to another house actually far out into the country in Virginia um, in the midst of what would have been closing. So, um, you know, maybe it'll come back around when things are less stressful for them. But, um, yeah, you know, he said he, he, he wanted to do it with me, but, um, he just knew he wasn't going to get her across the finish line. Um, and yeah. ultimately I think wh whether or not a, a partner is a co-owner, it's important to understand that dynamic in any deal because they're certainly going to have a significant say in, you know, in a, in a, in a business sale. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Nick, let's, uh, talk just for a minute. You've already touched on it about kind of your psychology, your emotions. You've already said that you, you were pretty disciplined about keeping your pipeline going, which is, is a theme that comes up a lot for a lot of people. That's very hard to do. The self-discipline of doing that is very hard. So at the end of a broken deal, they're left with a dead pipeline, which really hurts. You've said that you're resilient, a resilient guy, um, which also helps. Uh, anything more to say about just kind of like what this felt like? I mean, were you, did you throw your phone? Uh, did you laugh maniacally? <laughs> did you go for a jog? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> so, uh, no, I did not throw my phone. Um at that point, I'd already been through it a couple of times. So it was kind of just a, you know, a deflated feeling. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've, I've been through much worse trials and tribulations in my life. So, uh, I'm sure, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I, uh, I certainly gave myself 24 hours to feel sorry for myself and, and, uh, mm. and discouraged, but, uh, but you got to move on quickly when these things happen. So, um, was that, I mean, I was definitely frustrated. I had spent a lot of time, you know, I had, I'd been in underwriting with an SBA lender, put together a business plan for them. I was actually the night before it fell through, I put together my, the SIM I was going to distribute to investors. So I was up till two in the morning, putting together a SIM for that. So I spent a significant amount of time and emotional energy on the deal and probably reached out to 12 different searchers who acquired landscaping businesses to help learn the industry for, for which I'm very grateful. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, certainly frustrating to spend all that time on something for it to not move forward. But, um, 
you know, it's it's a privilege to be able to live in a country and, and to be able to do a, a an entrepreneurial path like this. And so, uh, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't spend too much time dwelling on uh, dwelling on this failure and not moving on. It, it also helped that this fell through the week before my best friend's wedding, which was in Italy. And there would have been some stress going to Italy while, you know, getting this deal <laughs> moving along. So I said, well, at least this fell through before my vacation to, to Italy. So um, it, it kind of came at an opportune time if there ever was one. Um, but I, I bet you made, made, a, made a fool of yourself on the dance floor at that particular wedding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I make a fool of myself. Burn off, burn off some energy. I make a fool I, of myself on any dance floor, Will, but uh, <laughs> particularly, particularly in light of that. But... Um, but yeah, it's tough. I, you know, I think another thing that prepared me emotionally was, um, you know, before I launched my search, was talking to a lot of, uh, of searchers who were both successful and didn't acquire. And you realize that this is part of the process. You're going to have to talk to yeah. a lot of business owners, put in a lot of offers. And on average, it takes a third executed LOI to get across the finish line. So I think that anchored me in reality. Uh, that, you know, this, this might not move forward. Um, and I got to the point where I thought, all right, I've got like a 75% chance of this closing. So I was pretty confident, but there was still that, that quarter chance. Um, of course those are arbitrary numbers, but that's, that's where I was feeling as we were moving along that, you know, at a high, pretty high certainty of closing. And what about the emotions of like, you know, one of the things you hear from searchers is they, you start really imagining yourself in the business, going to work there every day, kind of fantasizing, um, looking for the ways you'll improve it, kind of, kind of salivating at you know this new life that you're about to embark on. Any of that stuff, or were you kind of more uh, still abstract at this point and just trying to focus on the deal itself? No, I had definitely been excited about it, and and this is kind of a factor of my background and I think just my my personality. But I I like the operationally intensive blue collar service businesses when I showed up and I can say that they, they, you know, their main yard was on a, a military installation. So showing up at five forty-five in the morning and having 60 guys descend upon the yard, you know, 30 minutes later with they come get their trucks and go out for the day and, and, and do their service, uh, in a very different context, but it, it was, it was, I felt at home in that business. Yeah. And it also seemed to me, a you know that kind of uh, quintessential search fund acquisition where it was very antiquated, yet despite that had uh, you know, historic profitability. There was no website. There was certainly no pricing strategy. So I you know I, I you couldn't glean this from their financials, but they probably had a quarter of customers that weren't even profitable. Just doing some route distance analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were using none of the ERPs that are that are out there now to help with um, doing bids and pricing and and uh, route planning and scheduling and all of that. I mean, this was a pen and paper business, which of course is hard to transfer and hard to hard to run. But I think that's where a a searcher can create a lot of value. Um, sure. So I, I thought there was there was a lot of potential. I loved the. the the stability and um, visibility of their revenue uh, backlog with their government customers. They had very high retention. I mean, there's, there was a lot to like about this business, despite that it was quite antiquated. So I had, I'd gotten very granular 
in some of the details of things that I thought I could do with the business. And, and yes, I was, I was definitely excited, crazy as that may seem to roll up my sleeves and, and, uh, be running an, another 60 something person organization, get coming at five forty-five in the morning and, and, uh, and running a service business. So I definitely got into that point where I envisioned myself, uh, you know, running this business and, and thought by the end of the summer that, uh, you know, I, I would be doing it. And did you ever circle back around with a broker? Do you know if he fought, if he fired these, these particular clients? Well, I circled back with the seller actually came to my house to pick up some of those documents that he had given me. And, and we had a good conversation mm. and he even said, Hey, like I, I, you know, I'll, if you have other landscaping deals, I'd love to help you, you know, think about them. And, um, oh, wow. so uh, we actually still have a, our relationships fine. I, I really liked the guy. I think that was one of the things I also liked about the the deal was I, I thought he was a good man and an honest man and cared about his employees. And there was a lot to, to like about that. The broker, uh, we, we had a, 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 an after action review as we would call it in the military. And, and, um, <laughs> We left on good terms, and um, I haven't reached out to him since. I mean, it's been a little over a month now. Uh, but I said, "Hey, you know, if you've got other opportunities, let me know." He, he, this was more of a boutique bank, and so you know, this was another potential challenge here. This was his smallest client, so he pr- between that and, and the fact that he had already been through this and was frustrated with with some previous processes. Um, he probably didn't put as much attention and time into it. Uh, but, um, but no, the, you know, I actually really liked the broker uh, on this one. Um, and you know, a lot of the horror stories you hear about these broken deals are because there is no broker and, you know, there's a lot more risk of these things happening with, with a proprietary deal that you find through direct outreach. But just because they're being represented by an advisor doesn't necessarily mean that they are, uh, truly motivated to sell. Well, I think that's a, another lesson here. Um, it, if you haven't already articulated it, is that it, as much as you like this broker, you can't assume what the broker's doing. You got if there's if there's something about your your LOI, for example, your offer that you really want communicated, um, you just can't assume that the broker will will do that. You got to make sure that it has been clearly communicated because, as you know your interactions with the broker are only half of that broker's interactions. They're also interacting with the seller and you don't know what's happening over there or how much they're interacting. And it might, and as you later learned, this was actually the smallest and a frustrating deal for the broker. So he was probably not giving it as much attention as it might've seemed initially or as he was as other deals. So yeah. um, just In- don't, just don't assume your broker is, is running the deal for you. You are running the deal. Yeah, and it became clear later that they started to butt heads, and the the sellers were actually kind of losing trust with with the broker, uh, which of course becomes challenging. So if you have a good intermediary, they should be very helpful in the difficult conversations uh, right. with regard to a seller note or working capital. If you can leverage them to to be, uh, you know, an advocate for you to getting the deal done, let them talk through those. I think that's, that's generally good advice. But in yeah. this case, um, I, I think maybe that was partially my mistake having a lot of those conversations, but 
I mm. was in, you know, one, the, the broker wasn't here in DC and I had such a good relationship with the seller that we ended up just going direct quite, quite often. And, and mm -hmm. that's generally a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I mean, it was to the point where he was giving me his passwords to log on to his accounts to find, to, to, to find stuff. So, um, so we had definitely built that trust and, uh, but it led to having some of those difficult conversations instead of having their advisor do it, um, in yeah. depth. So, um, you can't always expect that a broker is going to do that. There's you know, most many brokers out there are not, you know, the, the, the best intermediaries. Um, but you know, this one certainly I think was good. I just, he just didn't give it the time, I think, and attention that maybe you know, one who, who didn't have as many other big clients would have, uh, would have given. Yeah. Well, Nick deals die three times before they cross the finish line. This one seems, seems like it has had a lot going for it. <laughs> you still have a good rapport with the seller. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe this is the third time this deal died and it, uh, it circles back around. Yeah, we'll see. I, uh, I think given some of the personal dynamics going on, there's, there's always a possibility of that. And I don't know, um, how much data there, there is, um, to support this. I, I, one of my mentors is Jim Sharp, who I'm assuming you've, you've heard of. He's to me, he's kind of the, the, the most prolific self-funded search advisor out there and, and is a mentor of mine. And, and in his data that he tracks about a third of Closed deals come from Phoenix sellers, as as he refers to. So sellers mm -hmm. that rise from the ashes. So so there's a chance this one comes back, but I think that's a good data point to take away is follow up with any seller who you make an offer on because no just means no now. So I have another yeah. LOI I'm negotiating right now that that uh, I put an offer in at the very beginning of my search a year ago. So uh, you never know. You know, people might be ready six months from now, not today. So it could be the case for this business as well that they come back. I would have to really emotionally uh, uh, do some introspection to go into a process again with them, um, given exactly. given what I'd already been through. But uh, we'll see. We'll see if they, they come yeah. back around. Yeah. Well, Nick, I want to close on just repeating something that you said uh, a few minutes ago and that you actually put in your email. I'm on your list of... Um, your, your kind of uh, investors and those who are following along, following along with your search. Um, so I'll get the occasional e email from you updating folks. And you said at the end, you closed that email by saying, you know, I just feel fortunate to live in a country where this path is even a possibility. Um, and uh, that's a wonderful perspective. I liked it so much. Um, and I think you, yeah, certainly about, you know, being living in a rich country, living in the States, um, but also just, you know, being just fortunate people, anybody listening to this po podcast or contemplating this path is probably um, just is it probably has a lot of um, gifts in many ways. So good to always keep gratitude anchoring one's perspective when things don't go the way you want them to. For sure, it's uh, it's a privilege to to be able to do this, and yeah. not I mean many countries don't even have the the mechanisms in the form of an SBA loan or other forms of debt or investors that are willing right. to back unproven CEOs to go do this. Yep. And, um, you know, to, to be able to go execute a search 
and and hopefully live what I think is the American dream. You know, running a running a, and owning a small business uh, is is something I never thought I would have the the opportunity to do until I went to business school and and really was shown the path. And one of the reasons I didn't end up uh, doing what I talked about in my my uh, my application to business school, which was going and working with my dad's business, is uh, I was opened up to a world where you can really think big and you have access to capital and you can um, you can buy a much larger business than what certainly he has. So um, I think when I put put those things in perspective and where I've been, uh, I'm certainly grateful to to be able to do this. That being said, I I do not want to be doing this for a full second year. So God willing, <laughs> one of these uh, one of the prospects in my pipeline right now will close, and we can do a 2.0 episode on that because for sure it certainly becomes uh, doing the especially proprietary search outreach becomes uh, certainly tiring after a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, Nick, I have no doubt you'll get there. How can people reach out to you, Nick, if they if they want to pat you on the back or ask you questions or otherwise connect? So I'm not on Twitter, uh, which I'm told I need to get on, but the um, <laughs> best way to reach me is my email, nick at sage-succession.com. Or you can look at me, look for me on LinkedIn, um, Nick Wheeler, Sage Succession, you should be able to find it. Very good, Nick. Thank you again for coming on to, to share uh, this heartache. Uh, because it is such a feature of um, of buying a business, and it, but it's one that often just gets glossed over. So I was I was really I'm really appreciative of the of the deep dive. Well, well, I'm appreciative of acquiring minds. Um, you know, I've <laughs> listened to a ton of a ton of your guests, and I've learned learned so much from them. And uh, when I was taking Rick and Royce's class in business school. On, to and from school, I would be listening to Acquiring Minds. And I, I actually view this as probably the most valuable class that I've had in my entire ETA curriculum. So uh, thanks for what you're doing and, and to all the other guests that have been on here to talk about their stories. That's awesome, man. Very high praise. Thank you so much for saying that. Sure thing, Will. Well, look forward to seeing you in Arlington soon. See you in Arlington and see you for uh, 2.0, interview 2.0. All right, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs>